Welcome to Relevant Founders, brought to you by Relevant Software. Relevant is an international software development company that designs, builds, and delivers world-class standard products for Fortune 500 companies and promising startups. In our next episode of Relevant Founders, we have Sean Sales, CEO and co-founder at Camino Financial, sitting down with us to speak about his founder's journey. Camino is a fintech platform offering affordable credit and wealth building solutions to overlooked entrepreneurs throughout the US. Take a look at this episode to find out what Sean had to say about Camino's original MVP journey, the rise of solopreneurs and how Sean believes that this is the largest work-life behavior shift in a generation and scaling the business while Sean prefers to build the team in-house and so, so much more. Okay guys, enjoy. Okay, Sean, hello. Really nice to see you here today. Really nice to have you on and thank you for giving us your time. So Sean, as I said, you'll be able to speak about Camino 100 times better than what I can. So for our listeners, please just introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us a little bit more of a kind of a personal uh, part of uh, your story and also the story of Camino. Yeah, well, I always enjoy hearing people repeat back what we're doing, uh, just because I, and I think you nailed it. You did, you did a good job. And, and so for that, thank you. And I'll add a little bit more color, but, but before that, happy to introduce myself and a bit about my story that you alluded to. So I like starting from the beginning. I'm the son of an entrepreneur that immigrated from Mexico in pursuit of the American dream. And like millions of immigrants, like my mom, they pursue entrepreneurship as their only real means of building generational wealth. And so my mom opened over 30 restaurants here in Southern California. And so I, I can never complain to my mom about working too hard. Uh, she, she managed a lot while being the head of household of six children. And I'm the youngest of the six along with my twin brother. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, my mom did lose her business. And so at that point in time, it was a character building moment for her, for her, but for the rest of our family. And, and my mom decided to, to basically pack her bags, remarry and move back to Mexico. So if you can imagine for a 12 year old, that was an experience in and of itself, mm-hmm. but it ended up being a blessing in disguise. I grew up in Mexico for a good chunk of my formative years from 12 to 20 years old, but always ambitious to come back to the U.S. and in a way live that immigrant story. And, and I'm really privileged that I did get a chance to do that and, and feel that fire in my belly and the uniqueness of what's exciting, what you can do when the opportunities are endless. And, and I think in many ways, the U.S. is known for that. Uh, but in many ways, also, many immigrants that come to the U.S. need help. They need a pick-me-up. They need a support system. Really? And so... In many ways, that's always been my my North Star. How do I build that support system for overlooked entrepreneurs, which include immigrants? And 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 that was really the the passion that has created Camino Financial. Um, right before joining or joining <laughs> founding Camino Financial, uh, I was able to to build a lot of experience in finance and investment banking, and thereafter private equity, and then was able to incubate what today is Camino Financial while both my twin brother and I went 
and got our MBAs at Harvard Business School. And, mm-hmm. and in short, today, what is Camino Financial? I'll just add a little bit of color. We're a fintech platform offering affordable credit and wealth building solutions to overlooked entrepreneurs throughout the U.S. Uh, we're, we're proud. Our, our, what I would call our initial wedge product is an unsecured working capital loan. It uh, starts at $1,500 and goes all the way up to $75,000. And we're able to offer this loan at very competitive terms, resulting in 40% lower monthly payments relative to our competing products. Mm-hmm. But what makes us even more unique, it's not just about offering an affordable, well-termed loan. It's also about really designing a product or a credit experience that enables our members, we call our borrowers members, to over time build generational wealth. And how do you do that? Tell me a little bit about your original MVP. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, MVP stands for minimal viable product for those that are, that aren't as familiar with the term, uh, but maybe your audience is. So, and um, it, it's interesting. We, started as a marketplace or effectively a glorified broker. Let's just call mm-hmm. spade a spade mm-hmm. where we, no one was going to give us money to lend into uh, overlooked entrepreneurs. And in particular, let me double click on our definition of overlooked entrepreneurs because that definition has evolved a lot uh, in the eight or so years that we've been doing this. We've been doing this for a while. Um, and, uh, and so initially we started with very narrowly focused on the U.S. Latinx market. Uh, for those that don't know the Latinx market, uh, we're talking about over 7 million uh, registered business and unregistered solopreneurs in the market. They're, of all overlooked entrepreneurs, they're the fastest growing segment in the U.S. and generating over a billion dollars in receipts uh, into the U.S. economy. And so it's a very big market. Uh, and, um, and so from that, oh, so close to 1 trillion, uh, excuse me. Uh, and so, yeah, very big market, very big market. Um, and so when we, so when we look at this market, we saw that there was a very big need for capital, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, there, there's an immigrant status issue here in the U S especially for those that are undocumented, um, there's a cash heavy nature of these businesses. They tend to be smaller. And so for a variety of reasons, it was, it's been hard for incumbents to penetrate the market with affordable terms. And so we really narrowed our focus, but at that point we didn't have money to move. And so we're saying, okay, you know what? Maybe yeah, at that point in time, it was 2014. And so we were just like, wait a second, look, the, there's this thing called FinTech out there that's booming. And there's all these online lenders that are emerging, started emerging since 2008, stemming from the great um, uh, recession. And effectively, could there could be a product to market fit. So what we'll do is, we'll try to bridge these two, mm-hmm. these, two uh, th- these two ecosystems, so to speak. There's the underbanked Latinx big business segment. And then there's the, 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 these online lenders and let's serve as a marketplace or a glorified online broker and connect the two. 
And one thing we would do is one, I'd, I'd be able to do two things with our MVP. Because as you know, MVP is all about uh, setting uh, verifiable or falsifiable hypotheses. So, so, so hypothesis number one is, are we uniquely positioned to acquire this market at a lower cost relative to anyone else? That was number one. Mm -hmm. uh, that was very important. And then part number two was, are any of the existing products in the market a good product to market fit that measured by conversion, look to book conversion, right? And so if we can effectively demonstrate this too, then, then we'll see, okay, great. There's, a, there's definitely a big market need. And also there are mar products in the market. It's just a function of connecting the two, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we were able to uh, figure out very quickly in our early, early days of Camino Financial is that we were uniquely positioned to find this market at a lower customer acquisition cost. So check the box there. Have you seen um, this demand uh, for Camino? Have you seen the, the demand still be so high as it was at the beginning when you first came out and set out your goals with Camino? It's much higher now, actually. We're growing exponentially. Um, just to give you a sense, uh, we hit the $100 million mark around last year. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be doing, uh, we've since then deployed close to another $100 million. And that, that was $100 million lifetime loans, right? So since our beginning. And so our MVP was a relatively long MVP. We actually started lending at the end of 2016. And then effectively, we by that point until last summer, it was $100 million worth of loans. And just to give you a sense, we expect to get to a billion dollars worth of loans by the end of next year. Uh, and so mm -hmm. we're growing exponentially. And so what, what has led to that exponential growth? So a few, a few things. Um, one, we're just being able to demonstrate we have a best-in-class product, not just for the U.S. Latinx market, but for other adjacent overlooked markets too. Mm -hmm. So initially, we were very focused on Spanish-speaking, first-generation, immigrant, uh, Latino business owners in the United States. That's where we were 120% focused on. And at one point, we realized, hey, we have a best-in-class product here. And we have a best-in-class product that we believe translates into other market opportunities. Uh, let's, let's give this a shot. And, and so effectively, that's what we did. Um, and we, and we, and so we very quickly, uh, just started was that in 2016 or was that around? The no. Same? So we, so we actually started migrating outside of the, the Spanish dominant Latinx segment, uh, around, we, we started trying last year at the beginning of last year, we really hit a nerve in the market, uh, by the end of Q3 of last year. And so just to give you a sense, like 80% of our market was like, Spanish dominant first generation immigrant around this time last year. Last quarter, 57% of our growth was English dominant, of which uh, a lot of it was English speaking Latinos, which is a market that's five times larger than the Spanish cohort. But a third of it was uh, Black owned business owners. And so we've been able to really demonstrate our ability to, to, to translate our market insights into product insights, mm -hmm. not just for the Latinx market, but for other overlooked markets too. There is this massive 
sub-segment in the business market that's called that are called solopreneurs. Mm-hmm. And solopreneurs, yeah, so solopreneurs are effectively, uh, uh, and everyone defines it a little differently. So I, I, I'll, I'll give you the, the high level of solopreneur definition here in the U.S., which is there are 30 million registered businesses in the United States, right? But of those 30 million, uh, roughly uh, 25 to 26 million of those 30 million are non-employer firms. So it's only one employee, which is the owner. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that's a bit more intuitive to understand. However, what's interesting is within the gig economy, there are a ton of these freelancers, entrepreneur-minded freelancers, 1099 contractors, gig businesses, individuals selling their goods through gig platforms that may not have, actually likely don't have a registered business, but they're business-oriented, they're entrepreneurs. And so that almost, that over doubles the amount. So if we aggregate these two subsegments, we're talking about 60 million solopreneurs in the U.S., mm-hmm. of which 5 million just joined last year, which, which actually highlights, in my mind, the largest work-life behavior shift in a generation, a lot of it oriented to solopreneurs. And not surprising, this is how we kind of fell into the market. Uh, 50% of net growth among solopreneurs are either Latino or African-American here in the United States. That's where the growth is coming from. So it's very interesting that, that, that we also start catering our platforms around this solopreneur segment. So between these two, these two verticals of growth, we've been able to just really take off. Did you, did you outsource your MVP at the beginning? Yeah, so we, so yeah, I mean, the reality is initially we were very focused on, it, 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 you have to be tactical about what you do and you don't outsource, right? So we outsource the hardest part. So there's, when you're a marketplace, you, the good news is you don't have to provide the capital to, to directly to the, the borrower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we effectively were outsourcing the capital piece of the business model. What we weren't outsourcing is the marketing and branding of that experience. We weren't outsourcing the onboarding of the prospective borrower. And so all that front end work, we were, we were, I mean, when we were doing it as best as we could, I mean, there was a lot of vaporware associated with that. I think at that point, I didn't have an engineer on staff. I think I set up the website on Wix and yeah, you know, uh, and, wow. and put a glorified form there that was then uh, promptly emailed to me and I put everything in Excel sheet. <laughs> so so there was, it was definitely scrappy um, uh, just to validate some key assumptions around. And I learned a lot too. I learned all about what it means to set up a website and track conversion of that landing page. What is a landing page? Mm-hmm. How do you market on Facebook and other platforms and and lookalike audiences and remarketing? These were all concepts that I had no clue of, but but that was the part that I was owning, so to speak. So I was able to get up the learning curve relatively quickly and effectively become a marketing expert for this segment, and then really quite frankly, kick the can down the road on the capital piece and really lean on the capital providers in the market to effectively book the deals. 
And, and I learned a lot. And once again, eventually we would, we would migrate to the capital piece, which is a very tough part of the business, especially for this segment, when you want to price them much more affordably relative to uh, existing products in the market. So that's where a new journey had begun. As for outsourcing, what is your kind of relationship with outsourcing? What are your hesitations? Um, what are your fears when outsourcing? Because obviously now growing at an exponential rate, I'm guessing even more so you will need to start to outsource. What are your hesitations when you outsource? Do you have any? Yeah. Or have you had good experience? Yeah. And, and I, I have a, I'm going to answer a question with a, a question very quickly, just because I want to make sure I'm answering this properly. So when you mean outsourcing, are you talking about outsourcing parts of your tech stack? Are you talking about outsourcing uh, uh, your, your development? Uh, well, I mean, what? Or, or Absolutely any, really. I mean, more so, obviously, our audience is more uh, engineers, developers. Um, so more developers and engineers, but actually anything. If you're outsourcing other parts of the business as well, that's also very interesting. Yeah. So so we did use... So, okay. The, uh, let me talk about the development, outsourcing development. I think that's that's very important. And then we can talk about software and, and, and other parts of the business, like in our case, capital. We outsourced capital at the beginning uh -huh. to, the, to, to answer your initial question. But, but, um, but let me talk about the development piece. So yes, we did outsource uh, our development. We, I found a, a very strong reference while I was in business school um, of an outsourced development shop in, in base side of India. And, and so I feel like that definitely was helpful in getting the the business off the ground, and so we were able to. And we were with them for quite some time. Um, we started in 2014. I was still in business school, so I wasn't full time. But when I say eight years, yeah, sounds like a long time. It is, especially for any startup. But you know, a good chunk of those, you know, year and a half of that was me in uh, business school, just kind of learning as I was doing and getting a lot of great feedback from professors in the process. And, and so in that, I found um, this outsourced development company. And I think that really was helpful in getting our MVP off the ground. Um, and so what's interesting is I see outsourcing helpful in different phases of a startup, right? I think it can, especially for non-engineer founders like myself, I felt that it was a great way of setting up an MVP. So that was amazing. Um, uh, and then in the, there's call it a second stage where you have an MVP. And at that point in time, I feel building in-house is probably more valuable, mm -hmm. uh, would have been more valuable to Camino. We didn't fully build everything in-house because we wanted to be pretty scrappy. Um, but, but there's more, I think, cons than pros when you enter a stage where you want to get a stable environment set up um, and maybe this is a function of the, the shop we were using but but you really you know once we brought in a CTO uh, I, I, I would have preferred to build most of what we were doing in-house and the reason behind that is you want to build a very stable environment for development and you don't want to and, and when you outsource at that point in time, because this is going to be no longer an MVP, this is going to be like your, your solid version one, yeah. call it 2.0, that you're going to scale for your first, call it, in our case, $100 million worth of loans, right? 
And and if you do too much, if 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 you do too much patchwork on that, you're going to build what's called tech debt. That can come back to haunt you in a real way, right? So you need to be very careful about what you outsource at that point in time so that the foundation is very good. However, outsourcing then has an act two, which is very interesting, which I, one I ascribe to as well, which is at one point, once you have a very stable foundation and development environment, you can actually bring outsourcing back in because then outsourcing gives you a lot of operating leverage, mm -hmm. especially for specific projects. But at that point, you have a very stable development environment uh, with a ver very clear protocols and technical counterparts at the company level that can really make sure that any outsourced development is being done in a very consistent way that doesn't create any tech debt. So I feel like outsourcing, at least in my mind, has different places that you could be very effective. And so to that point, there's a very long tail opportunity for outsourcing in development in, in that act two of, uh, of a, uh, well, I would call it stage three of, of a development of a company, but act two for outsourcing. What did, what did you mean by you wanted to be more scrappy at the beginning? And, and, and I've learned from it is I, I think I underinvested in product and technology, even as we were setting the foundation. So you were talking there about obviously at the beginning and you went to India, yeah, India to get the outsourcing work. Yeah, that's where you approached. Is this an area you still go to, a country you still go to for outsourcing, or have there been kind of other areas, other countries now that you go to and, and why? Yeah, so the so we don't go to India anymore. That, we're actually revisiting that. Um, and to be honest, the, the main reason why is the, the time difference. That, that will kill you. That time difference. So there's different ways of seeing that time difference. Um, there's the positive way of seeing it, which is you never stop working. You're, the wheels are turning, 20, development is happening literally 24 seven, mm -hmm. right? Or, 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 or give people a weekend, but, but you know, the, at least during the week, you, your development starting call it on a Sunday <laughs> evening, our time, things are going all the way to Friday in the afternoon. Like that's talk about it productivity right and so if you know how to set it up right uh i think the productivity levels can be very high and 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 you can effectively give your team work your outsourced team work to do while you're quote sleeping or gone right um you have so to be I think quite prepared for that though don't you? you have to be very well prepared in order to get that work ready ahead of time remember when i talked about there's a big act two for outsourcing, which is, it's a long tail opportunity. Once you have a very good development environment, then of course you, exactly, you can do it in a really thoughtful way, um, but you need to be ready for that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so in many ways, you know, we weren't able to take advantage of that benefit. The con is, you know, you're, you can really burn out your, product and development team if you're not set up for it with the time difference so then 
answering your second part of the question, where have we looked since then? So right now we're we're pretty we're not quite at that act two of outsourcing. Um, right now we're actually still uh, solidifying and building a lot of depth in our internal team. Um, we're hiring engineers and product and data science professionals like crazy right now, and and that's really once again a function of getting that foundation further along. I think we're much better than we've been um, historically, but we actually want to build a very large team of uh, by the end of next year in the range of 70 engineers, um, product uh, and data science professionals. So we're- How we're, many you know, we're, so far at the moment? We have right now in the range of 20. Uh -huh. So it's so, well, a lot. Lots of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. a lot of work to do um, over tripling the size of the team. Mm -hmm. And so we, uh, and so we're, we're growing that very fast. Um, and once again, that's also a function of the inflection point of our business. As I was telling you a little earlier, we really didn't start hitting that inflection point. We started in 2019, but then the pandemic hit in 2020. And then it was survival mm -hmm. mode. And then, and then 2021, finally, we started hitting that inflection point. And now we are, the good news is, and what I tell a lot of our engineers and data scientists that are joining is like, you don't have to worry about product to market fit with this company. We found it at this point, we're building beautiful systems for scale. And, and the opportunity is there. It's just a function of uh, really working and collaborating um, to, to build that, that infrastructure for scale. And then over time, you can white label that solution and sell it externally. I mean, that, that is part of our platform expansion strategy. And that's something that people are really excited about as well. Why is the internal team so important for you at Camino? Well, it's, it's to the same point made a little earlier. Um, I think they're both important. So we talked a little bit about revisiting India, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and we, we plan to do that because there are actually a lot of really good data science professionals out in India. Um, and so now some of it may be in-house, some of it may be outsourced and there's always a hybrid, right? But effectively, um, we also acknowledge that it is important to build a team in-house because you're going to be able to create a more stable environment that's more agile mm -hmm. when it's in-house from, from a foundation perspective. And so that's why building that in-house capability is important. However, <laughs> um, you will lose some of that agility if you don't rely on outsource uh, 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 development capabilities, specifically as you think about even specific project level development and, and, and needing to do it relatively quickly. And so, and so from that perspective, um, there is a balance of how well, how agile you can be mm -hmm. at different points in time. I just think, you know, today in particular at Camino Financial, we're in a place where we're, we're just going to we're, we're at a stage in which building more of that in-house capability is, is given the stage of our growth um, and the foundation building that still needs to be done at Camino. 
uh, we just believe that building that in-house will be more efficient, once again, with an eye towards um, leveraging outsourced opportunities as we enter that next stage of our growth and development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you say that, let's talk a little bit about team, yeah? So you're talking about here, um, when hiring, yeah? So when hiring at the moment, it's very, very difficult to find the experts, very difficult difficult to find the engineers of, not just an engineer who has the skills and qualities, yeah? But an engineer which you can grab that hasn't been offered a job from any any other position from any other place. You're obviously, um, one of the ways that it seems that you're approaching it is by saying, look, don't worry, we've got our product market fit. You are able to concentrate on this, this, this. How have you been at Camino? Have you been tackling this issue of finding the engineers, convincing them to jump on board? And also, I mean, not just a few engineers, let's say another, what, 50 engineers you're looking at. How, how are you approaching that? Yeah, so... The, so as cheesy as it sounds, lead with mission. Um, there are a lot of engineers that care about the issues that we're tackling here today mm-hmm. at Camille mm-hmm. Financial. I think it's hard to find a startup that's generally trying to make the world a better place. Uh, we're not just recruiting people to build another feature in an app. We're, we're recruiting top technical talent that can enable us to empower a community. Uh, I, I read this shirt the other day of, of an engineer that said, uh, coding is a modern day superpower. And it's true. And if you can use that superpower for good, that is a blessing uh, in life in general. And, I, and, I, and, I, and in many ways, I think there's been a lot of social distress here in the United States, in particular around our black and brown communities. And I think there's a lot of engineers that are looking for opportunities to make a difference and use their superpowers for, for good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, so, and so, yeah, we lead with that, number one. Number two, um, we're really focused on offering competitive uh, compensation packages. I think that's part for the course. And then three, we need to create the, the, a flexible and productive environment for engineers to work in. And I, uh, we product, productivity, I think, is important, but flexibility is equally important. And so uh, our, our engineering team is fully decentralized. Um, while we don't lose um, sight of the importance of creating that sense of community and, and engineering culture, and so how do we convene our engineers with some, um, uh, and this is something in the future of work life that we're still figuring out, but we're committed to, to create that, that community and that ecosystem where we can convene even in person with some reasonable, at some reasonable cadence so that we can build those relationships too. And I think that's that, that dynamics, not for everybody. Um, and then and hiring a great supporting staff to help recruit. So we just hired a, I wanted to ask you, what is the key to your retention here? Yeah. So you're saying that people aren't leaving a Camino. Um, you've just said that your recruitment manager. Yeah. So he is the, the one that kind of um, helps build that kind of feeling of staying together. People want to stay, be a part of the team. But how? How do you keep them to be a part of the team, especially if they're not centralized, especially if they're decentralized? How is that possible to 
retain so many people and keep them happy with what they're doing and focused for the same goal. Yeah, so so Ashley is our recruiting manager. She's more focused on bringing people, wheeling people in. Mm-hmm. But Eric really, his, I would say, 50% of his time focus on people management. It's uh-huh. not, uh, it, it, and the other is architecture and very limited coding because that's how it should be, right? And so he is constantly, one big mistake people make uh, when, when, really working with best in class or trying to build the best in class engineering team is that they, and and I feel like the technically led companies don't make this mistake is that, but, but I'm not a technical founder. So, so I, I really lean on Eric to make sure that engineering feels intimately integrated into our product strategy. Um, It's the, I, I get it. There need, we need to disaggregate strategy from development. I actually do believe in that, and and it, but but it's important that our product and engineering inform strategy, and it's not just a one way street where here's a strategy, go and build it. Um, and 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 we're we're really leveraging that influence of our engineering team to build a best in class uh, products. And, and, and I define products broadly, right? It's not just the loan. Uh, no, I, I, the loan is part of what we call our financial core. And the financial core is what enables us to process and price loans as efficiently as we possibly can, right? That's, that's our financial core. That's the, that's the pillar of our product strategy. Um, and, 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 and if you define that product more broadly like that, then it gives a lot of space for engineers to weigh in on how that can be built and how it scales. And, I, and, and, that's, and that's, I think, a key part. Number one, number two is very active about communicating that strategy too, um, not just with a very frequent cadence of communication with my direct involvement, but also Eric does a spectacular job even every Sunday on the weekend, sending a very long weekly email about, hey, what happened this week in product? What happened? How did we do measured, you know, measured by the KPIs? But how, what's going on in the strategy? Is there any potential, you know, everyone feels annoyed when there's scope creep and they didn't feel that they were involved or didn't see it mm-hmm. coming. He's really making sure that every engineer, product and data scientist at Camino Financial is very well informed about how things are evolving even from a strategy perspective and, and giving people the space once again to weigh in in every part of that evolution. I think that's very important. So obviously startup, you've been going for eight years now, so obviously it's quite a long time. Um, is there such a thing as a work-life balance for an entrepreneur, for anyone who wants to be part of a startup? And should there be? Is yes, hundred percent. So let me be very clear. Um, and and I'm gonna give. So I I'm gonna, let me give you more context of my background and mm-hmm. my view of work life balance before I answer this question because I've come a long way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, my I my mom worked her tush off 
for over 20 years um, in the restaurant business. And, and for those that know of the restaurant business, it's a very unforgiving industry. You're, you're, you, you're living in the kitchen, so to speak. And my mom opened over 30 restaurants. I mean, just to give you a sense, while being the head of household of six children, my brother and I used to fight over who would get to sleep in her bed at night so we can see her. That's how hard she worked, okay? Number one. Number two is my career started in investment banking. The, the industry of, of the infamous 100-hour work weeks that happen all the time, there was no such thing as weekend. What do you mean weekend? You know, and, and you're putting in over the weekend 16 hours, right? Like, like it, or plus, Um and so, and, and look at not every, I think everyone says, oh, every week's a hundred hours. For some, it was, you know, you have tendencies for a hundred hour work weeks, it's not every week, but nonetheless, really taxing environment from a work-life basis. And so when we started Camino Financial, I, I do think I brought a little bit of that mentality to the workplace. Um, hours kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a hundred hours, but. I had limits, but maybe, but definitely not a 40 hour work week for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and, and some expectations that people make themselves available over the weekend if necessary. Right. Um, and, and I feel like what I realized very quickly is that um, it's unsustainable. It's, uns it's, it's unsustainable for me. Uh, and, uh, and, and you need to learn how to shut it off and recharge. Um, and choose your battles. And so, and so the, and, and I know, by the way, for those that are hearing me, entrepreneurs, I know that it's really hard to pull off in the first call it stage of your development, because you're wearing so many hats, you know, the opportunity cost of slowing things down is too high. And, and so I know, like, it sounds like, yeah, sure. Turn, find a way to turn it off at the beginning, it's really hard to do that. And so I do think people that tend to join earlier need to be a bit more mentally prepared that, that, that finding that balance is going to be harder, right? Um, but I've also realized that second, third time founders that start companies, they're really good at, at even creating that balance environment. And, and that's just experience. They know mm -hmm. how to get people focused on the right done things. the hundred hour weeks. Yeah, <laughs> they know how to do it. And so I know like, like, you know, if I had to relive those early days again, uh, you know, um, I, I would have been able to do it a lot more efficiently. The way I describe it now is it comes in spurts. It's typically outcome-based and you do need to hit tight deadlines. Um, and so you'll find yourself working Yes, very. I, I, I don't think anyone's done in a very long time, a hundred hour work week at Camino. <laughs> um, but, but let's say you're definitely, you'll, you'll have spurts where you're definitely working well above 40 hours. I think it's fair to assume. And then once you're done with that spurt, you delivered, you got the outcome or not, and you're iterating through it, you'll have, call it a rest period, number one. Um, and that may include, you know, and, 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 and so so that's, I think, number one. Number two is we, you need to really respect people's time off and encourage people and police vacation time. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important that you also, because 
it's it's you're never going to be below 40 that's for sure but it may spur it up based on you know the demands of the business that that equally means that you need to give a lot of flexibility um on where people work when they're experiencing that one and two when it's time to take a break take that break and don't mess with people um give me what is the most valuable thing you had learned from harvard which you have now put into a, your startup into camino yeah the so i've learned a lot so let me answer the question directly i've, I've learned a lot in the context of business frameworks that that helped me frame my thinking and decision making uh i think in in business it sometimes feel like you're because business is imperfect and the information you're getting is not perfect and it's not as clean it's easy to be tempted to shoot from the hip uh it, it's easy and and i'm talking about like anything from of course measuring an opportunity in unit economics what does that mean right to how to read people and behavioral science you're talking about empathy. Uh, uh, empathy there like right now i initially i was all about learning that the finance piece of the business and quantifying opportunities and measuring success to now the stuff that i'm reading is all about behavioral science um Right now, I'm reading a book called Atomic Habits. It's awesome, um, and I'm reading, uh, yeah, and uh, and and so or there's also the Power of Habit and so forth. So there's like all these books that you're like, whoa! You start learning how to, in a way, better empathize and better manage your emotions and your behaviors to get the best of people. And so, in many ways, in business school, I feel that it introduced me to frameworks that I use a lot. Um, I'll, I'll give one author, unfortunately, he's a professor of mine that passed away a few years ago. His name's Clay Christensen. And he has, uh, there's this book called Innovator's Dilemma um, that covers most of the frameworks uh, that he uh, taught at HBS. That's probably a strategy. A lot of people talk about Michael Porter, you know, and, and his five forces. Uh, and, and so Michael Porter has really brought strategy to HBS. I think Clay Christensen has done a spectacular job as well. And, and his, his, his theories are just on point. Um, so I, uh, Innovator's Dilemma, check it out. Um, that's like my Bible for, for framing strategic decisions. What kind of trends do you think is going to kind of be occurring this year in the fintech market? What kind of trends? Ooh, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the trends are, one, we're going to see a lot of, so there's this talk about Clay Christensen and theories. There's this concept of bundling and unbundling of financial products and services. And so um, in the last 10 years, in many ways, we saw 
a lot until recently now, but, but, you know, call it phase one of the fintech boom was actually unbundling a lot of products in the market. Like credit, for instance, was a big unbundle that banks were just not well positioned, especially stemming after 2008 to offer credit to small business owners. And so you saw this unbundling of these products and services at more affordable, flexible rates than what a bank could offer, right? Um, and so in many ways, I think we're, we're starting to see the rebundling of a lot of these products and services in the form of neobanks or super apps, whatever you want to call it. And then I, I, the, the only sub bullet to that is a lot of these bundling of products are designed around specific market opportunities. And, uh, and so one that Camino Financial is focused on is the solopreneur market, but there's also other markets some are focused on your Gen Zers mm -hmm. and uh, they don't have a bank account yet or at the point in time where they're barely becoming banks. So they get in there a little early and they, 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 you know, the user experience is very different from a Bank of America account, for instance. Mm -hmm. So that's one. A second other big trend is um, I think fine credit and the delivery of credit as we traditionally have seen it will be very different in the next five to 10 years. Um, uh, one big term I'll throw is called embedded finance. So, so you're probably engaging with credit without you really noticing it, whether you're buying a Peloton bike and using a firm um, to finance the purchase of that bike and making monthly payments because otherwise you'd have to pay for that bike all up at once. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, these, and these financial products are being embedded into the experience uh, and, and you're really not realizing it. Um, and, then, and then the third big trend, and, and it's a trend that I'm carefully monitoring is this concept of DeFi, right? Decentralized finance and the role that, that crypto and blockchain has in, in offering a more decentralized um, financial ecosystem to access uh, products more affordably and securely, uh, just given the decentralized nature of how these products are being offered. And, and that's, there's so many different emerging use cases. There's still a lot of unknowns around how it's going to get regulated, which effectively centralizes it. But, but uh, that's, that's a space that I'm equally very excited in monitoring. Um, what is the best advice you have ever received, which you can give to our listeners? Best advice that I've received. Received in um, order to help Camino thrive. Yeah. Um, I think in many ways, and it's, a, it's an oldie but a goodie, but be patient. And is, I think in many, it, I now, and I, and I remember hearing this across multiple different dimensions, including my mom, uh, which is be patient. Success is not, an, it, there's no such thing as overnight success. And I think sometimes we get very distracted with, um, especially in the startup world of, of that these case studies of overnight success and all that company went from, you know, being worth 50 million to $2 billion, presumably overnight. And I think the harder the pain point, the longer it takes to build structural solutions to address that. And that means that it takes time. Um, and so be patient, be resilient, 
but also always be learning in the process because once you've, you know, in many ways, people think of luck as the intersection between, you know, you being prepared and timing of the opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And you just need to, when that, you see that intersection, you need to be there to capitalize on it. And, um, and, and, and those opportunities don't happen all the time, which is why you have to be a little lucky. <laughs> but you also equally need to be prepared to tackle them when they present themselves. Mm -hmm. Sean, very, very nice. You know, there we have it then, guys. So basically, um, being patient, but being prepared to work hard, being prepared to go at it, being prepared, prepared at least at the beginning to put in those hours. It's not a nine to five job. Yeah. And, and no startup is a nine to five job. Um, but there has to be some kind of work-life balance as well. Sean, thank you very much for your time today. It's been very, very informative, very interesting as well. And I'm sure our listeners are absolutely going to love this episode. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me.